Higher education is currently undergoing one of the most significant transformational shifts the world has ever seen. On this podcast, we've talked to a number of companies disrupting higher ed, online boot camps, vertical labor marketplaces, and coaching platforms. But this week's guest is taking aim at the entire university bundle, network, community, credentials, and education. Eric Tornberg is the founder and chairman of OnDeck and CEO of Village Global, a $150 million venture fund. OnDeck aims to take the university bundle and apply it to the entire life cycle of a person's career. OnDeck has recently raised a $20 million Series A led by Keith Raboy, a founder's fund, to build the Stanford of the internet. In this episode, Eric and I chatted about his early experiences at Rap.fm and being employee number one at Product Hunt. We then dove deep into all things OnDeck, and specifically, how he's thinking of building a new type of university that'll be around for the next 100 years. Eric, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Eric, excited to have you on the show today. We're going to dive you know, deep into a lot of things, startup lessons, philosophy, uh, the future of education, and, and of course, on deck. But before we jump in, give folks listening a little bit more about your background. Sure. I, uh, I started my first company in Detroit uh, called Rapt FM. It was like Twitch for music, starting with rap battles. Uh, I thought interactive social video platforms would be the next big thing, and it turned out I was just a, a few years too early. Um, and, and while I was at Wrapped FM, I remember asking Anthony Soleil, Nas's manager, to invest in my first company, in, in Wrapped, and he said no. <laughs> I then sent him other startups, and he said yes. And that process sort of uh, made, made me sure that I wanted to be in the startup world, not, not the music world. Uh, so after Wrapped FM, uh, I joined Ryan Hoover at Product Hunt as, on the founding team, and it ended up going vertical, and I started building this, this really incredible network. I started angel investing in companies like Scale and Rappi and Lattice and Nurix. Um, and I realized, wow, Product Hunt is this unfair advantage as it relates to investing. Like I was the same person I was a couple years ago when I was building Wrapped, but I had a lot more opportunities. And I realized I wanted to build more unfair advantages. So I started On Deck, which was an event series for people looking to start or join their next thing to find co-founders, people to brainstorm ideas, that ended up turning into, uh, uh, we'll get into later, um, a, a company that's focused on building the next Stanford for the internet. Um, and then I then decided to take my passion of building communities and networks and these unfair advantages and, and teamed up with my partners at Village Global to start a, a early stage venture fund. So let's let's double click into Wrapped, right? You're building your first company, Wrapped. A few years in, you had a key decision to make. Uh, you've talked about this before. I found it really interesting. So the decision was, you know, whether to continue building a lifestyle business uh, or to let go. And I think at, at this point you'd recognize there wasn't really a path to uh, reaching venture scale. You had a three hour meeting with legendary clothing designer, Mark Echo, uh, that you've said shaped the way you thought about your personal path. Let's, let's dive into that story. I think it'll be really interesting to the listeners and give us some key takeaways from that exchange. I remember I went to Mark's uh, New York City office and I was a huge fan of, uh, of obviously he's a legend of everything that he, he built and I wanted him to invest in, in my company. And I got an introduction from Dan Gilbert, who was our other investor, and I came ready to pitch. And, and we were on our last legs at, at this point. Like it had been three years. You know, there were a lot of moments beforehand where we could have given up, <laughs> should have given up perhaps, but, but kept pushing. And I spend the first hour you know, pitching Mark why it's this great opportunity. Uh, and, and he asks, you know, at our end, are you sure you wanna work on this? And I'm like, of course. So I spent another hour you know, really just honing in on what the opportunity is, why I'm the perfect person to do it. Um, and then he asks again, are, are you sure that out of all the things in the world you could be doing, like it seems that you're not getting that much traction, uh, you know, you, you, are you sure you wanna be doing this? 
And I said, yes, uh, uh, here's why we do have some traction. Here's why things are going to change. Here's why it's going to, to work. And then he starts talking a lot about the industry and his own experiences. And then one more hour after that, he's like, come on, Eric, you, you seem to have other interests. Are you sure that this is the best use of your talents uh, on, on this planet? And I said, God damn it. <laughs> you, you might be right. Maybe there's other stuff that I could be doing that better you know, harnesses my skills um, and, and talents. And I, I think the big lesson was um, you know, to, to keep my identity small especially you know early on there, there's sort of this tension where you want the like certain you know you want to have conviction but at the same time you want to have you know be open-minded that that you you might be down the wrong path and i, I was sort of set on this rapt fm path that that and i was i, I found a local maximum really I, I found something that worked for a little bit but then because i was so set in my ways i wasn't really to change wasn't ready to change course and and there's this great you know fitzgerald quote about the first rate mind is able to hold two contradictory ideas at the same time. And so that was a big lesson to, you know, strong opinions weekly held basically, um, and to be um, to be open-minded to to identity changing, especially early on. So you joined Product Hunt, right? After Wrapped as employee number one, you talked about that a little bit. And, and we'll talk about the uniqueness of that company in a second, but first walk us through, you know, how you thought of the decision to join Ryan at Product Hunt and specifically as it relates to risk. You know, a lot of folks, I chat with, I think, Eric, you chat with a lot of, you know, early career folks as well that are thinking about, you know, hey, how do I break into tech? How do I think about the next path? And I think folks often make two principal mistakes, right? One is I think they conflate the concept of job risk and career risk. And the second is I don't think they internalize the concept of asymmetric upside. Yeah, no, th those, those are, are great points. I, and to elucidate for the audience, job risk is the idea that your, your job might not exist, that the company might fail. Career risk is the idea that it, it might look negative on you uh, as, as a result of it. And what, what's amazing about the Valley or, or Valley or tech culture is that we we celebrate the founders e even when when it doesn't work out. We we respect them for for taking the swing, and that's why the founder of Clinkle or Juicero or name any epic you know um, you know failure can go out and raise money again because uh, because we really admire people who take big swings because there's sort of this idea that you're you're not known for your losses you're known for your wins like reed hoffman started a, a social uh you know a dating site um before linkedin no one knows about it mark andreessen started a social network where you could create you know social network for dogs <laughs> no, no one cares no, no no one you know thinks hard, bad about him you, and, and so the bigger risk actually is that you don't have enough shots on goal to do something interesting uh, not not that any individual thing fails and that relates to the asymmetric upside which is especially earlier in your career you, you want to pursue things that if it works out has has real upside for you and if it doesn't the, the downside is capped and and so when you look at something like crypto for example a lot of the people that were big you know fund managers in 2016 2017 when it was when it was when it was popping off were really young because they were willing to take that risk um, they, you know, they didn't have that much downside to, to looking stupid, so, so to speak. But if you were a big time investor, you, you had something to lose, which is why when you're younger, you, you want to take more market risk because your structural advantages, you have more shots on goal. Um, and so I, I think that's the biggest mistake young people make in general, which is they're afraid to look dumb. So they follow safe paths that cap their downside, but not realizing that they're also capping their upside, um, you know, pursuing so much optionality, then, then they don't get shots on goal. And, and for me, um, product hunt was was you know at the time it was a forum um and it was unclear you know if it would even be a big company um uh, or, or, or a real company i should say because it was a side project um but the way i figured that it was asymmetric asymmetric was at worst i would develop an amazing network like there, i just 
I really looked up to Ryan. He's a great CEO and I wanted to work with him. At the worst, I'd learn a lot and build a great network better than any you know business school program I, I, I could have, education I could have. At best, hey, this, this could really be something. And in practice, ended up turning, you know, something in the middle where I did get this great network. I learned a lot. It wasn't, you know, an enormous outcome, but it really set me up for for on deck and, and village. So let's let's talk product product hunt, right? Obviously, an interesting vantage point given the company itself as a community of products. Uh, you have this concept I love, which is looking at your career as a product, right? So unpack that idea and why you think a personal moat is so important. I think it's important to. Think about our careers in the context in a similar context for how we think about building products because if for a few reasons one is if you don't have a good product marketing won't be that effective it's it's a leaky bucket right and, and so that's why we talk about nailing retention before focusing on growth yet when we think about career growth we focus relentlessly on marketing it's all, all about you know what we're doing on twitter it's all about growing our network and, and many people feel constrained by, by the lack of a brand or a big network but it, 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 I think it's more they're constrained by the value that they can provide a network, i.e. What, what's the product. They, they think they need to get coffee with this person, but really they need to develop a skill, expertise, or some asset so that when they have coffee with that person, they have something to offer that person. So that person will want to have another coffee or recommend them to their broader network or uh, invest in them or work with them in some, some capacity. Um, so just like you should focus on mailing product before marketing, you, you want to f- focus on being so good they can't ignore you and then the networks and, and brands will come. Of course, you, you need the minimum viable network and minimum viable brand such that it can help you get so good they can't ignore you. Um, so these things do overlap, but I, I think most people sort of miss the forest for the trees as, as it relates to that. And then personal moat is, you know, it goes back to, you know, every, every product uh, has a moat in the sense, every great product is defensible in, in, in some sense. And so similarly, what what can be defensible to someone's career, um, such that you have more career capital, you have more leverage, you can work on your own time, you could you know, pick your own rates, you're, 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 you're rare and valuable. And so when you think about developing personal moats, it, it, you wanna think about things that are unique to your talents and interests, things that are easy for you, but hard for others, things that compound over time, things that are hard to reverse engineer. So th- these are just some frameworks for thinking about career growth that, that I think are helpful. Some of the tactics behind thinking about your career as a product um, you previously touched on really resonate with me. I want to break those down for the benefit of our listeners. So let's let's go to the let's talk about the first one. The first one is adding definition to anything you're doing. So a specific example, right? Uh, you've talked about when you started your podcast, you wrote a vision statement, uh, which essentially said something to the tune of, you know, in 30 years when people talk about your podcast, they're going to say Eric has interviewed the most interesting people in the world. And he's elegantly distilled and synthesized their knowledge. I like this concept a lot because to me, four things come through, right? In that statement alone, there are flares of ambition, vision, clarity, and intentionality. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. When when I give examples of of personal modes that are hard to reverse engineer, sometimes I give, um, you know, Elod Gill, when you think about, you know, investing, right? He's got, I don't know, almost 20 unicorns at this point. In order to recreate that, first, you have to commit like, I don't know, 20 years, um, you have to commit a long time. You have to have enough shots on goal and you just have to be so exceptional that it's such a daunting ta- task to even try to, to compete. And so when you compare that with contrast to like a, a TikTok audience or something, that, that, that seems pretty fickle. Like TikTok, the platform might not even be, be, be there in, in a few years in terms of the one that matters. And so thinking about things that have real durability and, and longevity um, to it. And so um, you know, in, in interviewing people, if you look at like someone like Terry Gross, right, or, you know, who's got decades 
of legendary uh, interviews. These things are hard to reverse engineer without, there's no shortcuts. You just have to put in the time and, and be so, so good at it. So angel investing is a good example. Um, you know, building a long-term audience via, you know, a, a great content over a long period of time is, is another good example. Building a unicorn is the, is the best example in, in for startups, at least because one founders get the most respect, but then two, because you just can't short, like there's no easy way to build a unicorn. It, it's proof of work in, in a way that's, that's really hard to do. So, so I, I think having, when you think about personal moats, having these sort of like end outcomes of what is really hard to reverse engineer is uh it is helpful to being more defensible i like the i like the what's really hard to reverse engineer in the personal mode idea because i think another derivative piece that comes away from that you know kind of career as a product idea is how do you define your edge right so something you have to think about really intentionally when building a startup but often gets lost when building a career right people ask me all the time you know how do you define your edge how do you get started and i think for anybody that has built an edge you know it's a pretty complex topic. It isn't straightforward. And oftentimes, candidly, it requires a lot of luck too, right? So there's no singular answer. I, I like to simplify it you know, down to core principles, things like developing community, developing expertise, right? A couple of the topics you've already touched on. How do you think about you know, defining edge, right? When you're actually kind of tactically thinking about this broader concept of personal modes and such? Well, first you have to know that you that you that you want an edge, and and you and you need to go to a niche, basically. And oh, I think there's a couple ways of looking at it. My my broader thesis here is for me personally, I don't want to enter the rat race unless I'm the fastest rat, and I'm rarely ever the fastest rat. <laughs> and so, um, if you're entering sort of a tournament style game where there's a lot of people who are doing the same thing as you, you know, the way that you have a moat there is if you're the absolute best at it, right? Like Sheryl Sandberg is like the best COO, and, and that's amazing. Um, there are lots lots of different examples uh, of that. Um, and so if you're not going to be the best at something, you need to find some other like combination of skills by which, by which you, you are the best. And so, um, you know, if you're great at brand, maybe you're the best brand person within crypto or the best brand person within healthcare. like continue to narrow until you own a niche that is uh, re really valuable. And so for me, I was really, I sort of stumbled into community building, but community building is pretty broad. There's a lot of people who build communities. It wasn't until product hunt where I realized, oh, wow, if I put, you know, five years plus, I could be the best at community building among founders. And so, um, you know, spending a few years at product hunt and then off of that building on deck, um, that sort of like that network and sort of reputation that started to build seemed defensible in a way that it wasn't prior or if I kept trying to go a, a bit broader. So let, let's talk community. Let's let's unpack that concept, right? So Product Hunt, Village Global, On Deck, they all have really strong elements of community in it. We're gonna touch on on, uh, on Deck specifically later in the discussion, but let's talk about this thread of community as a foundational layer for all three of these organizations. Unpack how you think about community, what makes a good community, right? And if people are, want to build community today, you know, how might they go about it? At, at the highest level, the framework I, I use to think about communities are, are value, and, and values. So when I think of value, I think about utility, uh, like what core problem are you solving or how are you tangibly increasing uh, or improving pe people's lives? Um, and then I think of values in the context of, um, you know, what do you stand for? Why, why would someone build their identity uh, around yours or bond their identity to yours? Because when, when someone bonds their identity to yours, uh, then they just have so much more investment in it. It's such a better, you know, uh, marketing uh, angle and, and the community is going to be so much stronger. And so I think of value as acquisition 
and, and values as retention. Value is the reason to gather initially and, and values is, is the reason to, to, to keep on gathering. And so I think, uh, I, I think you, I think you need to have, have both. So you're gathering a lot of folks today, right? Via on deck, um, really exciting business. You guys are growing incredibly quickly. Uh, I want to unpack it. So before we, you know, dive in, just give our listeners what the brief, you know, on, on deck is, um, you've had, some pretty interesting characterizations of, of college, you know, previously, both in written form and in, in audio of what you've talked about. Um, so give us a brief on what on deck is and, and what you guys are up to. Yeah, as mentioned, on deck first started as a community for uh, people who are looking to start or join their next company, but quickly set its sights uh, much bigger onto a community's uh, uh, interlocking set of, of networks and communities that that add value to each other. The, the, the broad way we describe the vision is we say, you know, we really look up to universities. We say, uh, as much as I have critiques on them, we look up to them. We say universities are places where people, you know, find out what they want to do in their lives, or at least explore different chapters. They get skills and expertise in, in those areas. And then they also make the most meaningful relationships of their personal and professional lives. Now, why does that stop at 22? Uh, why, why shouldn't that be lifelong? And, and also at scale. Um, not just for you know the most elite uh, you know people who, who who get in, and so we're we're trying to build Stanford, but for the internet uh, with internet assumptions, you take the bundle that is the education, the network, the credential, but also social you know uh, the other uh, purposes that that college fills, and apply that to the life cycle of someone's career. Um, and so you to give an example, you can imagine someone graduates at 22, then they join our early career fellowship. Then they become a designer, they join our designer fellowship, they become a manager, we have a manager fellowship, they transition into a new job, we have that transition fellowship, they become a PM, that fellowship, then they become a founder, then they want to become an angel investor, they want to build an audience. And, and we talk about this idea of if, if Stanford trains you to be a citizen of democracy, and that's an amazing mission, um, and not exclusive with what I'm about to say, which is OnDeck trains you to be a citizen of the internet. And what do you want to do if you're a citizen of the internet? Well, you might want to build an audience or build an investment portfolio or, or build a company or, uh, you know, develop your skill, learn, learn to know code, learn to code, uh, et cetera. And so that at the high level is, is what OnDeck is focused on. So to make the jump from college and higher ed today and, and the need to do this, of course, there has to be a fundamental premise that higher ed is struggling, right? Um, you know, we've, we've seen now kind of a pandemic that's endured. Uh, you know, for over a year, right, and still has some legs on it you know, before it turns out. And, and we're kind of seeing this changing behavior that might have first started out as blips, but is looking more and more permanent by the day. What are the factors contributing to why higher ed is in the state it's in today? And, and talk a little bit more about that kind of fundamental premise of where higher ed is struggling and, and what on deck solves for. Now, now that I've uh, said all I admire about universities and, and, and acknowledge that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, now I'm going to come with the with the critiques of why I think it could be so so much better and and why competition is a great thing. Um, so the main problems in education in higher education as, as I see them are that it's too expensive, it's too monopolistic, i.e. it prevents competitors from coming in and bending that cost curve. It doesn't prepare students for jobs or for the career a market sufficient labor market sufficiently enough, and it do, it doesn't serve as a good filter for employers. So I'll go one by one. On on the job front. We have too many people going to college and not enough jobs that require college degrees. Only 50% of employed college graduates got jobs requiring a college degree, and only 37% take jobs requiring even a high school diploma. Just to, just to paint a picture, 
there were 100,000 people in 2010 with bachelor degrees who became janitors. And there were 5,000 with master's degrees who became janitors. No, no disrespect to janitors, it's a noble profession, but you don't need to go to college to be a janitor. On the filter front, startups used to give, basically what happened was that startups outsourced their personality, their IQ tests to colleges because it became uh, you know, problematic to, to do so. And so colleges where you prove IQ via the SAT and you prove conscientiousness via completing the four-year program. And what's happened is that they're eliminating the SAT and many of the graduate exams, and they're pretending that eliminating standardized testing won't dilute the credential. And so if you combine that with grade inflation across the board, it's unclear what it means to even get into a college anymore or what it means to graduate. And so that filter that, that served a key crucial role is, is, is now circumspect. And there are other uh, you know, examples of people doing it that, that we can get into in a bit. On the too expensive front, th this part is the most obvious. Education costs have increased by 300% since 1980. You know, student debt is now 1.7 trillion. Government spends 3% of GDP on it. The incentives are all misaligned where the more money they get, the uh, colleges get, the more expensive it gets. It, it's kind of like a, a Ponzi scheme in some ways. We have a federal loan program funded by the taxpayer so students can go into debt and then keep paying taxes to fund other people's debt. And, and people might ask, hey, why could, how, how could this possibly happen? And what I'd say is this is what happens when, this is what we expect to happen when government restricts supply. Price escalates, quality remains stagnant. The system is running as designed. And, and not only that, our government also subsidizes demand with taxpayer funding, causes prices to rise even higher. We see similar things in housing and, and healthcare, so it, it shouldn't be too, too much of a shock, but, but, but it, it is what it is. And, and then lastly, in, in terms of why it's been so hard to change all these things, th there's, it's hard to compete. You, you'd think that with rising costs and stagnating performance, you'd see a bunch of emergent competitors. You know, if you compare it to tech companies like Google and Facebook, they're, they're sometimes called monopolies, but their respective reigns end every few decades, every four years or so, you know, IBM, Microsoft, et cetera. In education, however, the top universities have remained the same for centuries without new entrants posing much of a threat. And so why is that? I mean, these don't have like deep tech moats in the same way, right? Like they shouldn't, they don't have data moats. It shouldn't be, it should be easier to switch colleges than to get off Facebook or build the next Facebook. But effectively, well, one, they're very, they are more defensible than meets the eye. And so I want to give credit to that. And it, um, but also they're effectively government enforced monopolies. They benefit from tax exemption on the company and endowment level, federal funding for research and federal subsidies for student loans. Uh, becoming an accredited university is a multi-year painstaking process. And if your college doesn't get accredited, it can't get the federal subsidies and tax exemptions and thus can't compete. Sometimes people joke that Harvard's $40 billion endowment is like a tax shelter hedge fund. And so when you take all this you know, together, it explains the lack of innovation. Why disrupt yourselves when no one else can disrupt you? That's basically the, the mantra, of, the implicit mantra of ever, any monopoly is they don't care because they don't have to. It's, it's a particularly interesting time in ed tech generally. I mean, we've, we've talked about that issue previously on this podcast with founders attacking higher ed um, you know, in, a, in a variety of ways. I want you to spell out the way you think about the evolution of higher ed, the different waves education has gone through, and why OnDeck is the next natural evolution of this, right? So we, what we've talked about thus far is we've said, you know, let's identify the actual challenges with the status quo. Uh, but I want you to give a little bit more lineage and a little bit more history in terms of why is higher ed, you know, spun out this way and, and why OnDeck feels like that next natural, next natural kind of becoming of sorts. People have been talking about 
the unbundling of college for over a decade. I mean, when the Teal Fellowship came out, you know, people were talking about higher ed's a bubble uh, and, and people resonated with it. And people thought that MOOCs, you know, massive online open courses were going to change everything. And yet they didn't. Um, and, and what we found is that MOOCs had a really low uh, completion rate because um, it's not just about the content. Um, it's not just about the education. It's also, it's the bundle. It's, it's the social component. It's this uh, social accountability. It's the community. It's the network. It's the credential. It's the coming of age. And so I think what we've realized is you can't just unbundle college. You have to, you have to rebundle. And, and, and so I'll, I'll go back to that main point. But basically the evolution is first we started unbundling the education itself. You know, MOOCs unbundled the, the content and, and such that, you know, anyone can get access to Yale or Harvard content. You didn't go there for that anymore. You went for the network and the credential and the other stuff. Uh, accelerators like YC and other sort of vertical specific, you know, fellowships like what we're building unbundled the network component for certain careers. And then you saw tools like GitHub and Behance unbundle the credential for specific expertise areas. What, what really accelerated this was COVID because it showed the emperor had no clothes. The education part was already bundled, but now the network got unbundled too, or these people had to stay home and didn't have access to it. And it became so obvious that you're literally paying quarter million dollars for, for a piece of paper. And, and, and so the education got unbundled, network's getting unbundled. Uh, the credential is the last part. For fields where you can show your work, you know, things like GitHub and Behance can enable you to skip getting a degree. But what I'm really excited about is peer-to-peer -peer credentials. If, if I trust you and you say, you know, this person is the best young person you've ever worked with, that means more to me than a Harvard degree. And it's probably a few hundred people who I respect their judgment uh, so much to say that. Now that, that's a quarter million dollars for, a piece, for, for an opinion, for a piece of paper. So I'm excited to either build, fund, or see a peer-to-peer -peer credential platform that can help unbundle that, that component. Uh, in terms of examples of who's doing it, I, I, I love who else is doing it. I love what Lambda is doing, which is tying education to employment. So they help you learn the skills and get the job and are financially incentivized to do so. I think we'll see that for every category. But going back to where we started, you can't just unbundle this component, you have to rebundle. And so we, um, you know, we, we have the uh, cohort-based courses, which combine the best of MOOCs with also social uh, accountability. We, we, we have the network, we have the uh, credential, you know, one in three OnDeck fellows has, has OnDeck in their Twitter or, or, or LinkedIn bio. But we're also now focused on what's our campus experience? How do people meet their best friends? How do people meet their romantic partners? How do people uh, have late night dorm room conversations? How, how do people have fun? How do people have you know, coming of age experiences, you know, personal growth experiences? And, and so, yeah, we, we respect the, the bundle that is college because I think most uh, you know, first wave higher ed tech disrupting companies miss that and, and we're gonna need to focus on rebundling. I think that's one of the one of the unique things uh, to me about on deck is is actually you're attacking kind of this macro collegiate landscape. You're taking a more macro approach as opposed to you know attacking one distinct vertical at one you know at one point in time. So you talked about Lambda School. Uh, I'm an investor in a company called FlockJ that came out of YC a couple of years ago. A lot of these companies are kind of taking off you know individual components, right? So whether it's you know attacking sales, attacking software engineering, et cetera. You guys are taking this more macro approach, right? Um, and not, that's not dissimilar to how an individual college has tons of coursework, tons of departments, et cetera. That element is particularly interesting to me because I, I think it actually makes the, I think it makes the opportunity much larger. I think it makes the execution much more challenging as well, right? Um, so I want you to talk a little bit about that. And specifically, one of the things I'm really interested in, Eric, is how you guys think about the different fellowships and how they both stay distinct 
yeah, yeah, entwined. Yeah, fascinating question. The, the biggest thing I learned from Product Hunt um, around going to different categories is that each category needs to make the existing category stronger, the core stronger, and also benefit from the core, or else you're just building a new startup and you can't build multiple startups at the same time. And, and so that was the biggest lesson taking into, and so with Product Hunt, for example, when we did books, it, it didn't have the same audience, so it didn't benefit from it, and it didn't really make the, the tech vertical stronger. And so uh, for, for OnDeck, we first, we sort of stumbled into it, but we focused with founders initially, and we said, hey, what do founders need? They need to raise money, they need to hire people, and they need distribution. And so we immediately started with categories that add value to, to founders and where we had some initial audience that would want to join uh, you know, that, that existing program. And so, uh, you know, for example, we did writers, which the first program was filled up with 25% of you know, existing on-deck fellows, and that would provide direct distribution to, to founders, but we didn't do YouTubers because we didn't feel that we had the right audience um, it might help our founders in, in terms of distribution, but we just didn't have the, the right audience yet. And so the categories that we're focused on, on, on doing are one, the entire founder stack. Um, so pre-company, but then all the way to IPO to the entire investor stack, angels, uh, VCs, we're also going to do public markets soon. Um, three is positions. So any position you'd hire for uh, with designers, chief of staff, but we're just going to go down the list. Four is um, sectors. So for people who want to do deep dives, and we're coming up with a bundle program so people can do both ODF, uh, the Founder Fellowship, and like climate or healthcare or fintech or space at the same time. And then fifth is 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 creators and media. And so starting with writers and podcasters, and we'll get into we'll get into other groups as well. And the way we think about it is each category has to serve the supply of of someone else's demand. And and that what that enables us to do is really vertically integrate and be able to offer value in someone's entire career. And so someone will unbundle our you know, writer's program, their already, competitors already exist, or a designer's program, or any individual program, and they'll do a better one because that's what unbundlers do. They, they, they you know, focus, hone in on a niche and create a better experience. But people will still do ours, we believe, because of the overall bundle. You, you know, because people don't just want to talk to other designers they also, and build relationships and learn how to be better manager. They also, you know, two years from now, they'll want to maybe start a company or want to join another company. And what these fellowships give us is network liquidity um, across categories that can add value to anyone uh, in any step of their career. And, and that's how we think about uh, creating that bundle. I think there's two layers which are particularly interesting. So one side and kind of what we've been focused on thus far is the specific skill set. So that's, that's very analogous either to future unbundled competitors, right, or comparisons of, you know, schools, boot camps, et cetera, that tackle kind of that specific skill. Um, if, if I think of kind of the old world collegiate sim, uh, system, that's your coursework, that's your departments, et cetera. On the other side though, I think there's a whole bunch of other just stuff, right? Of like mapping a new collegiate experience that becomes interesting to talk about. So I'm imagining a whiteboard of, you know, 15 to 20 things you get out of higher ed you know, and then you guys kind of mapping it on a two by two of, you know, what's the relevance on the vertical and what's the evolution on the horizontal, right? Meaning if you were to create a, a 2.0 college of sorts, right, which is, you know, what on deck effectively is, what are the things from the old construct that matter or don't matter? And then how do you solve for those, right? Either by keeping it the same or upgrading it in a way 
that makes sense in the digital first environment. So we, we talked a little bit about, you know, the specific kind of departments and coursework, so to speak, but what are all those other elements you guys think about and how on deck can, you know, strategically and in a strengthening and reinforcing type way, you know, create that ethos or create that ecosystem? I think, you know, when people talk about the bundle, they often focus on just the, you know, very, um, atomistic about it. They focus on the education, the credential, and the network. That's something that we are thinking a lot about right now. It's something that most people who are trying to unbundle or rebundle college are not thinking enough about. In a post-COVID world, we're going to be mostly digital because we, we can then reach the entire world. Um, and that said, we're going to do a lot of retreats, a lot of you know orientations, graduations. We're going to create our own rituals and our own traditions that are that are digitally native. You know, one fun example, for example, is that every kickoff we, we do uh, has a, a freestyle rap component to be full circle to wrap up. That is sort of a unique, remarkable, and everyone has to freestyle. <laughs> that, so right away, people are getting vulnerable. They're having this remarkable, uh, it's remarkable in the sense that it's you know worthy of remarking uh, you know how bad everyone is when, when they do it and this sort of shared uh, experience. And so that's, and it's, it's and, and so resume, I mean, it's, it's hilarious. And so that is one example of many that we are creating, crafting, to, uh, to help people open up and, and, and build those relationships because I think that is something that is uh, highly under considered of, of how to create that in a, in a digital way. Your answer to that question, Eric, takes me to a, a comparison that you've made before that I really like actually, which is you know some businesses are come for the network, stay for the tool. Uh, other businesses are come for the tool, stay for the network. Unpack those two with some examples and, and talk a little bit more about where OnDeck fits in that spectrum. Chris Dixon, a decade ago, I believe, came up with the uh, come for the tool, stay for the network. And he was talking about uh, tools like Instagram, where you came for the uh, you know, original filters and then stayed for, the, uh, you know, for your entire social network to, to, to come on and, and see everything that they did. But the hook was, was the tool uh, initially. Um, there are other examples that, that, that have the opposite. You think of like LinkedIn or Quora where initially it was come for the community, i.e. it started with a, you know, elite, amazing community, and then stay for the data that that community creates. I, you know, um, the, the reason you put your resume online initially was because you were one of Reed's friends and it was sort of a special club or that, you know, you, you had answers with Quora's because you, you wanted to be, you know, in, in, with the cool kids, you wanted to come to the, the Quora parties. Um, and then, you know, you either stayed or, or more people came on because, hey, now there's a lot of data here. There's a lot of resumes here. There's a lot of um, you know questions and answers here. There's a lot of interesting content, and so we think of ourselves in in the latter case uh, as well. Uh, we started with uh, you know really value add communities, i.e. you know we're solving a specific problem. You're looking for a co-founder, um, and then the reason why people stay and why we hope they subscribe and and you know stay on for on deck for life is because we're we're creating a marketplace with that community we, uh, where. Um, you're looking for a co-founder, but you also might be looking for customers. You also might be looking for other hires. You also might be looking to make a new switch yourself. You also might be looking for investors. And so each program, again, is applied to another demand. They all sort of intersect with each with each other. And the way we think about it is that other people sort of build communities on top of their products. We do, we, we, we do the opposite. We, we, we build communities first and then lay our products on top of it to, to, to strengthen that moat. What's the right way to think about this business if I'm thinking about it outside in? Is this a, is on deck a technology business, services business? Is it in education? Is it in events? And there's so many components here which make it you know pretty interesting to think through. 
how do, what's the right way to think about this business? How do you, how do you frame it uh, to folks? Yeah, we, we, we think about it as a, as a technology business, but, all, but also all, all the above, to be sure. Um, we do have all, all, all those components. Um, that said, we have software margins and we're totally you know, digital, um, you know, uh, and, and, and you know, uh, make 70 plus margins on, on every category. Um, but then also uh, we're really invested in, in our product. Uh, Andreas Klinger, CTO of Product Hunt with me is, is, is CTO at OnDeck. And we sometimes say like, this is the best way to, to back into a sort of private specialized LinkedIn. I, we're gonna have 100,000 fellows a year who are you know, highly curated uh, expert, experts across areas, across positions. And that network, that social network is going to be really valuable. There's a lot of things that will, a lot of companies that will be created, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, recruiting that, that will happen on, on, on top of that platform. Um, that, that audience itself is a perfect early adopter audience for so many other uh, products that can be built on, on top of it. And so, yeah, we, we think about it as, as a technology company, um, but it, it, is a, it, is a, it is a hard company to have comps for. We've sometimes used the example of Peloton because Peloton has a rabid community. Uh, Peloton has a high upfront cost and, and we are gonna be transitioning to a subscription model for, for new members. Um, pr pretty soon, uh, old ones get grandfathered in, um, and we are, uh, yeah, going to have a high upfront cost, so people have skin in the game to join these programs and get a lot of value out of it. But we're also going to have a subscription option for people who not just want to have the value of their community or fellowship for for a long time, but also the uh, across fellowships and uh, you know all the other fellowships plus our entire campus experience, uh, et cetera. So, so that's how we think about it. Eric, as we as we round out the conversation. I'm curious what you think the non-obvious insight is, you know, about your space that other people don't quite get yet. One of the things we've talked about in this conversation is how challenged higher ed is. And I think that's actually one of the most obvious insights about the space, given how many companies are trying to attack this in so many different ways. I think the interesting nuance and probably the surface area for non-obvious insights comes in the appropriate way to actually attack this space. You guys are obviously taking a very unique approach, right? Some of the things we've talked about today. So what's the non-obvious insight um, in, from your perspective about this space that other people don't quite get yet? I, I, we, we call our business a, a curation business. Um, you know, uh, Naval coined curation businesses to describe sort of things like universities and accelerators that have this sort of ineffable brand component to them uh, that is hard to reverse engineer. And also once it gets started, it's hard to, hard to end or hard to disrupt. And so I, I think what people underestimate is how defensible curation businesses are and, and how long they last. Because we're trained to think in the context of tech and, and data moats and not really understand uh, you know, brand. And, and I don't know necessarily how to evaluate D2C brands in, in, in that same way. Um, you, uh, but as it relates to curation businesses, what, what's really interesting, at least in terms of us, we think of ourselves as having network effects within cohorts, right? So your first batch is always, is is not going to be as good as the eighth batch, um, but also across cohorts. Um, and when you when think of something like YC, something like Stanford, anything that gets to a level that starts to pop in terms of curation business, it's not going away. Uh, and so people will, will ask us like, what happens if someone else comes and does it and just takes all your all all your users? We, we have one third of our users have on deck as their identity. That you. That is a tie that is not, um, you can't put that in a spreadsheet. You, you can't quantify that. But when you become some part of someone's identity, that's a very defensible and very long-term um, asset. 
And so uh, I would love to see um, Silicon Valley, uh, us just have, and I'm thinking about this, researching this, just have more sophistication about how we think about curation businesses. Like people will say, hey, or some people will say, you know, YC is in trouble. Some founders aren't doing YC. I think YC is stronger than ever. I, I think, yeah, they'll have people who will, um, who will drop it because they, they think it's too big. But for everyone who drops it, there's new people in countries all over the world that are that are clamoring to get get into YC with even more and more traction. I, I think these brands get stronger even despite themselves um, at, at certain times. And so uh, that sort of element, which feels different than sort of a DTC brand, um, you know, sort of defensibility. Although I, I don't want to comment outside of my area of expertise too much. Um, I, I think. We, I want us to have a better understanding of curation businesses as it relates to, to talent evaluation, as it relates to education, as, and particularly as it relates to universities and accelerators. Well, Eric, this was, this was awesome. I so appreciate you taking the time, you know, to come on and, and really kind of educate us and, and um, you know, provide us insight on how you're thinking about the future of higher ed. I think the on-deck model is incredibly, incredibly interesting, and, it, and it's a very unique, um, unique model in which you're attacking the space. So, Really looking forward to continuing to follow the journey, continuing to follow the progress and, and wishing you guys the best of luck. So thanks so much again for taking the time. Thanks for me. It's been a pleasure.